your heart today as well. So when was a time when you would say it wasn't fair? You know, maybe it wasn't fair when you walk out this morning and it was like zero degrees. I don't know. But when, you know, I find that fair is something that, it, like we already said, it's just implanted on our DNA. And, um, but I've got a story that truly was not fair, okay? Mine really wasn't fair. And I'm just going to tell you so that I'll feel better and you'll feel sorry for me and, and maybe you'll help pay off the ticket that I have. Um, actually, I've already paid it. But So I used to live at a different place than I live right now. And, and um, to get to my house, you came to a stoplight and you turned right and you went down this little road to, to our little house that we rented. And lived there for about two or three years, I think it was, maybe a little less than that, I don't remember now, but... Invariably, what would happen is that stoplight would get backed up. You know how they do, okay? And cars would just always go to the right around the line of traffic and just turn right into where I lived. I mean, it just happened all the time, right? I mean, every single day I did this. So one day I'm riding home from work, you know, in my truck and listening to music, okay? And, and I come to that stoplight and sure enough, they're backed up. No big deal. Turn on the blinker. Go over into the right-hand side. Go up. Turn right, okay? There was a light mist that day. It was raining just a little bit. And the road down to my house kind of had, it was like two or three like 90-degree turns, all right? And so I'm riding along in my little pickup. And, and every time, I remember every time I went around one of these turns, just for the fun of it, I mean, 16-year-olds, you should never do this, but when I'd go around that turn, I'd kind of like just, you know, give it a little bit of gas and make the back end kind of, you know, shoot around, around the turn. You ever done that? Me neither. Um, so, you know, I did that, uh, let's see, once, twice, three times, four times into my house and buzzed around and pulled into my driveway. Music is rocking, probably like Chris Tomlin or something, you know, and I look in my rearview mirror and there's a police officer. With his lights on. And I was like, I got this look. And I never forget, he goes, <laughs> I hadn't seen him. So I just got out of my car, which you, I've come to find out you should never do that. But, um, but I did, okay? I, just, I mean, I was at my house, so I got out of my car. And he had me get in my car pretty quickly. So I got back in the car. And by now, of course, all the neighbors are all looking out the window at Pastor Lowell, right? You know, what's going on? What's going on? Here it turns out, he was behind me, clear back at the stoplight, okay? He was with me, waiting for the cars. And I buzzed around, and he's watching me, and when I first went to the, at the first right-hand turn at the light, I did this little shoot-my-back-end-around thing, and he said, I thought, hmm, I'm going to follow this guy and see what's going on. So he went behind me the whole time, all three, four times. He's there watching me scoop my back end around, you know, around these turns. Of course, he writes me a ticket. Um, I think it was like, I don't know, a legal right-hand turn or something like that. But here's the part that I know you're going to just be so heartbroken and, and want to do something to make yourself feel better. Um, checks can be sent to my house. That'd be fine. That very week, they put in a right-hand turn lane. Can you believe that? I got pulled over on like, I don't know, a Thursday. The very next thing, you can see it. I want to have it named after me. It's right up here by the Comfort Inn across from Exxon. Okay, there's another little hotel there on the right hand, Route 9 towards Martinsburg. That right hand lane is mine. They put that there because of me. I paid for it, $180 I think it was, or something like that, because of my legal right hand turn. And it just wasn't fair, right? No, you know it was fair. I broke the law that day. 
and had to pay for it. Hey, open up your Bible tonight, or this morning that is. Feels like night to me. I didn't get much sleep this weekend, but open up your Bible. And um, we're going to be eventually in Luke. Um, We've been walking through the life of Christ. And today what we're going to look at is how to handle injustice. Now, we force you today to think about times when life wasn't fair. You know, we might come up with some story that we might be able to get a little bit of laugh after, but the truth is, probably if we went around and listened to what people said, things that weren't fair, there wasn't a lot of laughing. And that was on purpose. Because life doesn't always come at us in a fair way. And there are things that feel like injustice. And how do we endure? How do you endure injustice? You will find no greater example of an injustice than what we're going to look at today. The trial and the whole process of condemning Christ to death is more unfair than what you even realize, I suspect. I mean, it's unfair at its eternal, from the eternal perspective, that God in the flesh is dying in place of sinful man. You can't get much less fair, much less justice than that. But in truth, all through this passage, in Luke chapter 22, at the very end, into chapter 23, we have injustice all over the place. And really, studying the injustice of this passage has helped me understand it in a greater way. But before we get that, I want to put a passage up on the screen that is an encouragement to me, and, and I trust it will be to you. You might even try to memorize this, especially if you could see it. That'd be helpful. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's on your worship notes. Listen to what Paul says. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the words of Jesus to Paul. His grace is sufficient, his power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul writes, So therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The truth is, we all have things in our life that don't feel fair, that feel unjust. We have things that come our way that we quite honestly, we would say we do not deserve. There is a morning you wake up and you have an illness or you have a problem, you have a sickness that you didn't do anything to earn it. Somebody does something wrong to you maybe. You didn't cause it. This is the way life operates. We live in a sin-cursed world. We are sinners living in a sin-cursed world. And we have things that come our way that are not just, that are not fair. And the truth is, we have to know how to endure through them and glorify the Lord. And we look at the example of Christ, we look at the words of Paul, we see how to be there, how to endure through injustice. I love the word endure. I love the word endure. There's two words in your Bible that that can be translated endure. 
Okay? One of them is typically translated patience. And it means to endure with difficult people. Okay? Patience. Enduring with difficult people. But the second one is enduring with difficult circumstances. There's a difference, isn't there? Outside, now listen to this, outside of the human years, the years where Jesus is living before His resurrection, outside of those years, God is never spoken of enduring. God doesn't have to endure. Now, God is patient. But the word endure isn't used towards God. Now, why is that? Why does God, in His sovereignty, why does He operate in a way that's patient? He deals and He remains under the burden of difficult people but never difficult circumstances. Why might that be? Why might it be that we are called to endure with difficult circumstances, but God is never spoken of in enduring with difficult circumstances? Do you know why that is? Because God, there are no difficult circumstances for God. Your illness, your challenge, the thing that you face, that's not difficult for God. That's His plan. That's His plan. And He is working His plan in our lives. Now, we have to endure difficult circumstances. I love the way the word endure. It means to remain under. That's why I put a picture of a column up there. It means to remain under, to stay there underneath of it. Even though it's difficult, I stay there and hold. But for God, it's not that way at all. That thing in your life, that, go back up to the passage, that weakness, that calamity, that hardship, that insult, he's using these things in our lives. Now go to Luke chapter 22, and let's see this played out in the life of Jesus. Jesus is going to be on trial here, and what we, what we need to understand is this, that when weak, and here's my first point, when weak, we must hold firmly to truth, we must hold firmly, firmly to hope, we must hold firmly to Christ. We're going to read this passage in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse number 63. We're going to see Jesus doing this. He's going to hold on to truth. He's going to hold on to hope. And we can hold on to Christ. Verse 63, chapter 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. And they also blindfolded Him and asked Him and said, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? This cruel game of like blind man's bluff where they would put this thing on his eyes and then punch him in the face. And now they're, they're making fun of the fact that he claimed to be a prophet. Oh, you could tell us the future. Well, then tell us who hit you, Jesus. This cruel game. 
And they said men and other things against him, blaspheming him. What does that mean? He claimed to be God. And they're saying, you are no God, as they beat him and mocked him. Verse 66, when day came, because many hours pass between 65 and 66. Many painful hours, many unjust hours. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. Verse 1, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And for now, skip down to verse 16 and see the at this point, the last words of Pilate for today, he says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, I read this passage and questions come to my mind. One of the first questions I ask when I read this question is, Jesus, why weren't you more clear? Have you thought about that? They say, Jesus, you know, they say, are you the Christ? Why not just come out and say, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am Son of Man, I am Him, bow before me, and I will die for you, and you will have eternal life, right? I mean, why didn't He say that? Why doesn't Jesus speak up here and just be a little more direct about who He is? That's my first thought that comes to my mind. You ever thought about that? You know, this, this story is told in all four Gospels. And in reality, this night, there are six trials that occur. There's three religious trials and three sort of man's trials. You could see maybe the government authorities, okay? So let's, let's just walk through these. We won't have time to look at all the passages, but I want you to see what's going on. And one of the things I want you to see is how unjust this whole process is. Start with me and turn to John chapter 18. Keep your finger there. We're coming back to Luke 22 in just a minute. But I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18 first. John chapter 18. All four Gospels record what happened here to Jesus. We're going to look at just two of them today, just for lack of time. But I want you to see in John chapter 18, the beginning of this process. And I want to look at verse number 31. 31. John chapter 18. I'm sorry, verse 13. John chapter 18, verse 13. We see the band of soldiers, the captain, and the officials of the Jews arrested Jews. They bound him. And first they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now there are six trials that happen here in the life of Jesus, in this, in this night of Jesus. And what I want to start out with is I want to tell you how the court system is supposed to work in the Jewish system. You see, the Jews were very proud of their legal system. 
God had given them a, a plan of what they were supposed to do. You can see it in Deuteronomy. And he told them to appoint judges. And so they did that. And they had, a, they had a very elaborate system, especially when it came to capital offenses. A capital offense is one that could end in the death of the person who is accused. And what happened was, is God led the, the Jewish people to establish what is called the Sanhedrin. Now, in every town where there were 120 men, you were to have a Sanhedrin. In every town with 120 men. And it was made up of 23 men who would listen to offenses, to two cases, and acted as both the judge and the jury for the accused. But in Jerusalem was the Grand Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 people plus the high priest, so 71 people. And this system was made up, honestly, when you hear the way that it operated, it was, it was, it was derived with an idea of mercy. And there was a complete system that was arranged so that mercy could be given to the one who was accused of a capital offense. Let me tell you about some of the rules that were set in place so that mercy would definitely be there. For instance, all it took to find a man innocent was for a simple majority. Of the group of 70 men, if a majority said, not guilty, you are free to go. However, to convict a man, you had to have two more than majority. That's just one example. So for not guilty, majority. For guilty, you had to go above that two more than a majority. But the Lord didn't just do that. He also said this. If the decision was unanimous, so if all 70 people said guilty, guess what that meant? It meant that the trial was dismissed. Because it was evidence that these 70 men we're not being merciful. Interesting. The accused was not allowed to testify. You could come in and say, I killed them. And you were not allowed to testify. They say to Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? Their own law says he cannot testify against himself. Interesting. Doesn't that bring this to light now? When they said, tell us, are you the Christ? And he said, well, you say that I am. He's not allowed to testify. Other things that were true. A false witness. If you came into this courtroom and you claimed that such and such was true and you were then found to be false, guess what? The punishment that would be for the accused if found guilty is now yours. Imagine that. Now that curtails the line, does it not? So there's a man there accused of a capital offense. If found guilty, he will give his life. Matthew talks about the number of false witnesses that were brought into the room and they conflicted with one another left and right. What they should have done is dismiss the case, the, the case, drug those two guys out in the street and killed them. That's what they should have done. It's amazing when you see what is happening, what Jesus is aware is happening, and yet he presses on, enduring through this injustice. Let's go to the passage and just, just walk through this a little bit. I've given you a flavor of the kind of things that are true. Go to Luke chapter 22. Let's just walk through this. And, and I'll, I'll, along the way, I'll point out a couple things. We won't have time for all of it. 
Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him, and they also blindfolded him and kept him, asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now what happens between 65 and 66 is they were with Annas, who was not the high priest. He's a retired high priest. Now they take him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest, who does run the Sanhedrin, but yet Annas and Caiaphas had no right to be really running this case. The only people who did were in verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together. This is the Sanhedrin, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to the council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. Now in truth, their own law said that this was a question that was illegal. The only way that you can be found guilty of a crime is for two or three witnesses to be brought forward and to proclaim what he said. I ask you, where are those witnesses? Had Jesus claimed who Christ that he was the Christ? Had Jesus made that claim? All through the New Testament we have him. All through the Gospels we have him doing that. But they brought no witnesses. Where were they? You know. Where were they? They're hiding. They're hiding. But there in this room are people intent on the destruction of Christ. Their only mission is to take His life. And so they bring in this unjust system to bring Him down. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. How could He say that? Because He knows their heart. He's been saying it left and right and no one will receive it. If I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated, the right of the power of God. And so they said, so you are the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now this is a very confusing statement. Just to reveal to you how confusing it is, I wrote down the way the different translations try to translate this phrase. You might have a different translation than the ESV. For instance, let's see, where did I write this down? There it is. ESV says, you have said so. In American, New American Standard says, it is as you say. NIV says, yes, it is as you say. New King James says, it is as you say. King James says, thou sayest it. The truth is, Jesus knew their heart. And what Jesus says here, when He says, you say that I am, He's saying to them, you know in your heart. Your heart is speaking. You are revealing what is there. Will you hear it? And then they said this. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought Him before Pilate. Now tell me, if you were a defense attorney, what would you say right now? You see it? How how many of them arose? How many? The whole company. What would the defense attorney say? No! It's unanimous decision. There's no mercy. But they move forward. Let me say this. Let me say this. We all must beware of something. This doesn't just apply to the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and Annas and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We must beware of something. And that's the blinded 
and seared heart of two things. I'm going to throw them at you both right now because I don't have time to develop it all. Jealousy and selfish ambition. The blinded and seared heart of jealousy and selfish ambition. The truth is, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were so blinded by their hatred, by their envy and jealousy and greed, that they could not see the truth. And that's the human condition. We have portrayed out in this passage man on trial and Jesus on trial. Man displays his hatred. Man displays his envy. Man displays his blinded heart, his seared conscience. And Jesus displays his mercy. Watch out for this secret sin that blinds us of jealousy. Of jealousy. Often, that's why we say it isn't fair, isn't it? I mean, is it fair that I got a ticket when I turn right? Because you know what? Everybody turns right there, right? Is it fair that I've got an infected finger because I look out there and none of you guys do and my finger hurts, right? Is it fair that my wife left me and your stayed there? Is it fair that my kids are doing this? Is it fair? Is it fair? Is it fair? The truth is, it's jealousy. God calls for us to endure through the trials, through the struggles, through the hardship. And the only way you endure Trust, trust that God has a plan. You tell me, how does Jesus go through this knowing what is coming? We could look at Pilate. I mean, we we, we aren't going to take the time to do it now. We're going to delve into it a little bit next week as well. Pilate, driven by his ambition. Herod, driven by his ambition. Both those men, you know what they wanted? You know what Pilate and Herod wanted? They wanted this problem of Jesus to go away. That's all they wanted. They wanted Pilate and Herod. That's all they wanted was Jesus to go away because he was in the way of their selfish ambition. Now, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Turn with with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's interesting, before the Art of Marriage seminar, Pastor Brent and I were talking about this passage. And I appreciate it. He directed me to this verse. And, and God really used it in my heart. 1 Peter chapter 2. He told me about verse number 23 and 24, but I couldn't help to read the ones before too, Brent. Verse 21. For to this you, believer, we have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now we started our time together talking about how to endure injustice. And where I want to end is this. For the believer, there truly is no such thing. There truly is no such thing. God has a plan in our lives. God has a plan. And He is working it out. He is establishing it in your life. And He allows things like challenges. He allows things like insults. He allows things like hardships. He allows things like sufferings. Because in His just plan, He's making us like His Son. So do what the passage calls. Don't revile. When you suffer, don't threaten. When you go through this, entrust yourself to the hand of God. That's where we need to head. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your example. Lord, I just lift up anybody here who maybe, um, maybe they have some struggles, Lord. Could be physical, could be spiritual, could be emotional. God, take our lack of trust. Take our struggle. Help us, Lord, to turn it over to You. And to do as You did. When You faced what the world would call unjust, You put Your hope in the One who is just. We pray in His name. Amen.